Hi, listeners. Before we dive into today's show, a little bit of news. Today's episode will be the last for female criminals. From the savage mistress Delphine LaLaurie and the obsessive fan Yolanda Saldivar to our very first episode on the cocaine godmother Griselda Blanco, it's been such a privilege to bring you these captivating stories each week. I'd be lying if I said I wasn't humbled by your support. And if you've been with us since the beginning, we can't thank you enough for sticking with us. And if you joined us later on, there's no better time to catch up on the classics you've missed. Over four and a half years worth of stories about wicked women, complicated women, and even women who probably didn't deserve the title criminal, but were labeled so nonetheless. It's been a fascinating journey exploring their inner lives and public personas, and we never could have done it without you. We couldn't have done it without our amazing team as well. Talented researchers, writers, producers, and more who made this show possible week in and week out. Thank you all. So on behalf of everyone here at Female Criminals and Parcast, thank you again for welcoming us into your homes, into your cars, and into your earbuds. It's been a pleasure. Due to the graphic nature of these women's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Everyone knows that the best criminals are the ones you'd least suspect, the ones you never see coming. This was true for Helen Golay and Olga Rutterschmidt. To everyone around them, they were just two elderly ladies with an obsession for jazzercise. They were harmless, helpful even. But the truth was, these church-going volunteers were pure evil. They planned, they plotted, and they pulled off a crime that was almost perfect. At least, they would have gotten away with it. But then, greed got the better of them. And like all the best criminals, they turned on each other. Welcome to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. History has seen its fair share of women in trouble with the law, but whether or not they were all criminals is sometimes open to interpretation. This is the show where we cover the full spectrum of women behaving badly. Last time we learned how Helen Golay and Olga Rutterschmidt became fast friends after meeting at an L.A. gym. We tracked how they bonded over small-time scams and frivolous lawsuits before devising a much more sinister scheme. They took out life insurance policies on an innocent man and killed him. Today, we'll see the duo strike again. We'll follow Helga and Olga as they collect their winnings, only for their plans to be thwarted by an unlikely adversary. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Last we heard, Helen Golay and Olga Rutterschmidt had just gotten away with murder. Technically, Paul Vados' 1999 hit-and-run death was still an open case, but there were no solid leads. So in the early 2000s, after years of dead ends, the police shelved the files for safekeeping. Meanwhile, 70-year-old Helen and 68-year-old Olga made off with nearly $600,000 in life insurance benefits. But it wasn't enough. 
We know that because of what they did later, not because they burned through their stash quickly. See, there are no accounts of Helen and Olga ever going overboard with their money. Sure, they might have purchased a nice outfit here or there, maybe a new car, but they weren't running off buying yachts or gallivanting across Europe. It's also possible that, now that they each had a couple hundred thousand in their pockets, their goalposts shifted. Because frankly, they didn't need more money, but they sure wanted it. Before we continue with today's psychology, please note that I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. And we're going to begin by continuing that sports metaphor. In the game of life, we're all reaching for some kind of goal, right? But it's important to recognize that some ambitions are better than others. According to psychology professor Barry Schwartz, that's because goals fall into one of two categories, satisficing or maximizing. Satisficing goals are more attainable with specific defined targets. An example of this is when we make a goal to run a 5K by September. Come fall, if we actually cross that finish line, we can check it off our list of to-dos and feel satisfied that we've successfully achieved our objective. Maximizing goals, on the other hand, are more lofty and have no particular end in sight. Like when someone says they want to make more money. Since there's no actual number in mind, it's difficult for us to gauge when we've actually hit the mark. As a result, maximizing goalmakers are more likely to feel depressed and less happy than their counterparts. Helen and Olga were clearly maximizers. Even though they'd scored a six-figure payout, it wasn't enough. They each had a vague goal of making the most money possible. So they went back to the drawing board to do it all over again. Their plan was simple. Do exactly what they did before, only better. More life insurance policies, higher premiums, and a way bigger payout. It took them a minute to find the right guy, but finally in 2002, Olga met him. The 69-year-old had just gotten in a workout at the gym. Afterwards, as she made her way out, she spotted 45-year-old Jimmy Covington across the street. He was sitting on the steps of an office building and appeared to be unhoused. Olga couldn't help but admire the serendipity of it all. It just so happened that she had access to a space inside of that very building. She knew she had to strike while the iron was hot. Olga raced across the road and approached Jimmy. In her brash, fast-talking manner, she told him about the office. There was a futon to sleep on so he could stay there at night, as long as he was out early in the morning and didn't return until after office hours. There was just one catch. In order for her to help him, he had to sign a couple of papers. Jimmy shrugged and said, sure, that was all right by him. Olga clapped her hands in delight. Then she ushered the poor guy upstairs and got him settled. Almost immediately after that, she pestered him for personal details. She wanted his birth date, his social security number, even his parents' social security numbers. Jimmy didn't know all the answers to her questions, but even if he did, he knew better than to tell some stranger he met on the street. He had the feeling that something weird was going on, so he kept his mouth shut. But Olga was determined. She kept on haggling him for answers for days, until finally Jimmy had enough. 
he decided the whole situation was more hassle than it was worth and wanted out of the arrangement. He marched down to the building manager, returned the key, and never came back. When Helen heard that Jimmy was gone, she was irate. She'd already filed an insurance application under his name. And it wasn't some measly 50K policy like back in the day. She'd requested $800,000 in guaranteed death benefits. He was supposed to be their next meal ticket, but they had no idea where he'd gone or how to get him back. That left them at square one. And back at their favorite hunting ground, the Hollywood Presbyterian Church. The ladies knew there was always a group of vulnerable, unhoused men there on Sundays. So a few months later, in the summer of 2002, they prowled the grounds and found 47-year-old Kenneth McDavid sleeping outside. He had no job, no family, and no close friends to lean on. So when the two women threw out a lifeline, he clung to it. He believed they were angels sent from above. Per usual, Helen pulled a lot of the strings. She handled all the logistics, the finances, and most importantly, the paperwork. She set their mark up in a Hollywood apartment. She paid for the rent, utilities, and unbeknownst to Kenneth, his life insurance premiums. Olga was the muscle. She brought him groceries every week, partly to keep him fed, but mostly to have a convenient excuse to keep an eye on their investment. After losing their last prospect, she wasn't about to let Kenneth slip through her fingers. So she played it cool and kept him happy. And as far as we can tell, he was. But the same couldn't be said for Helen and Olga. Trouble was brewing between the two friends. It seems they both wanted to make more and more money, even if it meant stabbing each other in the back. As planned, they applied for a couple of insurance policies together, where they'd take an even cut of the payout. But in secret, they also took out additional policies where they would be the sole beneficiary. Combined, they held 13 different policies for a total payout of $3.7 million. But only three listed them as co-beneficiaries. From the remaining 10, eight were under Helen's name, Olga, who was never quite as good as Helen at the insurance game, only managed to take out two for herself. Despite the underlying tension, the insurance backstabbing schemes only lasted for so long. Both women knew they had to wait two years before they could cash out, so it didn't do them much good to keep taking out more policies. Each one was going to reset that clock. So in 2003, they went on to the next phase of their plan. That spring, Helen got her hands on a purse belonging to a woman named Hillary Adler. Hillary had never met Helen or Olga before, but it appears they all went to the same gym. And that month, someone broke into Hillary's locker. Take from that what you will. Then, in January of 2004, 70-year-old Olga used Hillary's ID to purchase a silver mercury sable. Afterwards, Olga parked the car in the alley behind Helen's Santa Monica apartment. It sat there for the rest of the year, waiting for its big moment. Once that was taken care of, there wasn't much left to do except wait. 
Helen and Olga now had their murder weapon, the Mercury Sable. They had their insurance policy, times 13. And their victim, Kenneth McDavid, had no idea about any of it. The problem was, he'd gotten a little too comfortable. At some point, he befriended some unhoused people in the area and decided it was his turn to pay it forward. When someone needed a place to stay, he opened his doors. Or should I say, Helen's doors. Eventually, Olga found out what was going on and went ballistic. To make sure no one else moved in, she hired an armed security guard and ordered him to remain in the apartment with Kenneth. Now, I'm not sure what this actually looked like, whether the guard was standing by the front door like a bouncer or watching over him like a babysitter. In any case, by the start of 2005, Kenneth was over the strict living conditions. He took his bike and his belongings and returned to the streets. Once again, Helen and Olga went into panic mode. The insurance policies they'd taken out on Kenneth wouldn't mature until later that summer. The women had to find a way to keep him within their grasp for another six months. As far as we can tell, Kenneth no longer wanted to be tethered to the women. But he still needed a roof over his head. And when they tracked him down to offer their help again, he couldn't turn it down. For the next few months, Helen gave Kenneth money to stay in various motels around Los Angeles, all so she could keep tabs on him. But by June of 2005, he was getting harder to keep track of, and Helen and Olga worried he'd disappear entirely. So even though not all of the policies had hit the two-year mark, they decided they had to act. If they didn't, they'd lose everything. And losing was not an option. Coming up, the past catches up with Helen and Olga. Now back to the story. The time had come to kill Kenneth McDavid. 74-year-old Helen Golay marched down the back alley of her apartment and slipped into the silver mercury sable she and Olga had bought especially for this day. It had been parked there periodically for a year and a half, but on June 21, 2005, it was finally go time. It's unclear if her partner in crime, 72-year-old Olga Rutterschmidt, was with her that day, and we don't know exactly how everything unfolded once the sun went down, but it does appear that at some point, Helen drove east to Hollywood, where she found Kenneth on the streets. Perhaps she knew he couldn't turn down a hot meal, so she told the 50-year-old to throw his bike in the back of her car and that she'd buy him dinner. Kenneth did as he was told and climbed into the passenger seat. It's entirely possible that she kept her word and got Kenneth some food, it's just that she also spiked it with enough prescription sedatives to knock him out. And for her own peace of mind, she bought him a beer to help speed up the process. Before the mix of drugs and alcohol made him pass out completely, Helen got Kenneth back into the Mercury Sable and took off. Around 11.45 p.m., she pulled into an alleyway on the west side of L.A. Halfway down the drag, she stopped and turned off the car. Under the cover of darkness, Helen dragged Kenneth onto the pavement. 
Then she grabbed his bike from the trunk and positioned it off to the side of his body, making sure one of the wheels was completely off. It seems she hoped it would look like he stopped to change a flat tire. Then she got back in the driver's seat and turned the key in the ignition. She put the car in reverse and backed up for a running start. When she had enough space, she changed gears, then slowly drove over Kenneth's body. The front tires crushed his chest and shoulders. But as Helen eased forward, the fuel line on the car's undercarriage got caught on his body. She pressed down on the gas, hoping it would release. Instead, as the car shot forward, it broke. And then the engine died. Helen panicked. She couldn't be found in a broken-down car with a dead body right behind her. Maybe that's when she saw the shiny, bright lights ahead. There was a gas station just around the corner. All she had to do was make it there, and she could leave the crime scene. Lucky for her, the alley was on a slight downslope. She let the car coast, praying she'd reach the bottom. 500 feet, 400, 3... Two, there, she turned into the gas station, parked the car, and fumbled through her purse for her phone. As she called AAA, she likely inspected the car. There didn't appear to be any visible evidence of her crime. She'd driven over Kenneth slow enough that his major injuries were internal. There was no shattered glass, and most importantly, no trail of blood. At least, that's what she thought. Helen had no idea that there was a small amount of blood on the undercarriage of the car. But as far as she knew, no one could trace her to the dead body in the alley. Half an hour later, a tow truck arrived and drove her back home to Santa Monica. According to the driver, there was nothing suspicious about his passenger that night. You'd never have known she'd just killed a man in cold blood. It seems that Helen felt no emotion, no regret, and no remorse for her actions. As a result, researchers Frank Perry and Terence Lichtenwald would likely classify Kenneth's death as an instrumental homicide. These types of murders are motivated by a clearly defined goal. They're logical, practical, and lack any emotional underpinning. For that reason, they're often an indicator of a killer with some form of psychopathy, which these days is grouped under the category of antisocial personality disorder. Now, as far as we can tell, Helen was never officially diagnosed with a personality disorder, but she definitely displayed the signs of ASPD. Despite running over a man she promised to take care of, she lacked the ability to distinguish right from wrong. Nothing seemed to unsettle her, certainly not any sense of guilt. When she got home, she simply phoned Olga, probably to tell her it was done. Then she went to bed and slept like a baby. Unbeknownst to Helen, someone had already found Kenneth's body. While she was getting towed home, paramedics raced to the scene, but it was too late. Kenneth was dead. Fortunately, he had his ID on him, so by the following day, investigators traced his last known address to his old Hollywood apartment, the one Helen had paid for. The cops got a hold of Helen's name and notified the 74-year-old of Kenneth's death. 
They hoped she'd be able to help them answer some questions. And she did. She pretended to be Kenneth's cousin and sole next of kin. She gave them a sob story and identified his body at the morgue. And then she paid to cremate him. Around the same time, the LAPD discovered that a security camera had recorded part of the alley on the night of Kenneth's death. The footage showed a silver vehicle driving through the alley, but it was too blurry. They couldn't make out a license plate, let alone the specific model of the car. With no other real leads, the case fell to the wayside in the overworked traffic division. And that would have been that if it wasn't for one pesky insurance investigator. 59-year-old Ed Webster worked for Mutual of New York Life Insurance. He traveled the country and looked into questionable insurance claims. And this one fit the bill. Red flag number one. Helen told the police she was Kenneth's cousin, but on Kenneth's insurance application, she wasn't listed as a relative. Red flag number two. Helen and Olga were both listed as beneficiaries, but neither would take the time to talk to Ed. Usually if there were questions about a claim that was legitimate, the beneficiaries were more than happy to clear the air. Red flag number three, the crime scene itself. The staged bike prop didn't make any sense. Maybe at first glance it looked like Kenneth was changing a flat tire, but Helen hadn't even bothered to deflate it. It was good as new. Not to mention Kenneth's injuries, which were consistent with being run over by a car, yes, but not a hit and run. If a vehicle had come at him fast and accidentally hit him, there should have been lower body injuries. Instead, he had marks all over his chest. That meant he'd likely been on the ground when he was driven over. After a few months of sleuthing, Ed went to the LAPD and presented his case. He believed that Helen and Olga were not only trying to commit insurance fraud, he was certain that the duo had killed Kenneth McDavid. At first, the authorities had a hard time buying it. A couple of old grandmas were cold-blooded murderers? Yeah, right. But then one of the officers piped up. The case sounded strangely similar to one he'd worked six years back. He checked the old file, and sure enough... It was all right there. Helen and Olga had reported Paul Vados missing before claiming his body and receiving his insurance payouts. What's more, he too had been killed in an unsolved hit-and-run incident. The rest of the officers couldn't believe it. They were dealing with repeat offenders. In response to the new information, the LAPD combined Paul Vados's case with Kenneth McDavid's. By late 2005, they assembled a task force to investigate the two elderly women. The squad included several undercover detectives who followed Helen and Olga wherever they went. As author Jeannie King explains in her book Signed in Blood, Helen was easy to keep eyes on. Every day, she drove her flashy Mercedes SUV down to Izzy's, a Santa Monica deli that she loved. She always sat in Table 22, where she did her bookkeeping. Olga, on the other hand, was a little harder to trail. Remember how Helen and Olga had initially bonded over being health nuts? 
Well, Olga had never stopped. Even at 72, she was a machine. She was always running along the beach or up through the Runyon Canyon trails. She was so fast that even the LAPD detectives struggled to keep pace. The women had the cops run ragged. Even though they had no idea they were being tailed, it didn't even cross either of their minds that they might be in danger of getting caught. All they were concerned about was getting their money, which they did. In August of 2005, just two months after Kenneth's death, Helen and Olga each received about $250,000 in death benefits. But that was only some of the money owed to them. Remember, there were over $3 million to collect. But they wouldn't see a dime more if Ed Webster had anything to say about it. The police might not have had enough evidence to arrest the women, but Ed wasn't working with the same burden of proof. He was convinced Helen and Olga were responsible for Kenneth's death and told Mutual of New York not to pay them out. The company agreed, and he got to deliver the message. In January 2006, he asked Helen to meet in person over at her favorite spot, Izzy's. She probably thought he was coming to admit defeat and hand over her long-awaited check. So when he walked in, she sat straight up and waved him over. Ed was equally smug. He took a seat across from her and passed her an envelope. He watched as she ripped it open to find a check inside. Only... It wasn't the one she wanted. Ed explained that the insurance company was refunding her premiums because she had lied about the nature of her relationship with Kenneth and obtained the policy through criminal means. They weren't going to pay her the death benefits. Helen was furious. They couldn't do this. The policies were supposed to be incontestable. She shouted at Ed, accusing him of being out to get her. Then she stormed out of the diner and supposedly reached out to Olga to let her know what had happened. Olga had also scheduled a meeting with Ed for that morning, but after Helen's alleged phone call, she blew it off. So he went to her. Later that day, Ed stood at Olga's apartment door and handed her a letter that explained why Mutual of New York wasn't going to honor her policy. She threw it back at him and threatened to call the cops. After that, it's possible she called Helen to commiserate. They'd just lost everything they'd spent the last two years working for. It felt like they'd hit rock bottom. But they had so much further to fall. Coming up, Helen and Olga turn on each other. Now back to the story. After two long years of planning the perfect murder, Helen Golay and Olga Rutterschmidt were back to square one. They weren't going to get the big payout they'd been hoping for. At least, not when it came to Kenneth McDavid. But for someone else, that was up to fate to decide. So by early 2006, the two septuagenarians had already started hunting for a new victim. Around this time, Olga sparked a conversation with 74-year-old Josef Gabor. He was a fellow European immigrant and didn't seem to have any close friends or family members around. And though he wasn't homeless, he lived alone. 
When Olga offered to help him get settled in the city, he happily accepted. Step one was getting him up with a bank account that she and Helen could deposit money into. All she needed from him was to sign a few documents before they drove down to Bank of America and opened a checking account. It was all so simple. Except, unbeknownst to Olga and Helen, undercover cops had been tailing them for months. And they even got pictures of the whole encounter. It was clear to authorities that Yosef was their next victim. But suspicion of a future crime isn't enough to arrest someone. And the LAPD still didn't have enough to bring the pair in for either of Paul Vados or Kenneth McDavid's murders. Fortunately, the FBI was more than happy to lend a hand. Homicide charges might have to wait, but they could nab the women on mail fraud, which was a federal crime. At least, that would get them off the streets, and it would give the LAPD time to amass all the evidence they needed for the real charges. So in the early morning hours of May 18, 2006, law enforcement officials from the LAPD, FBI, and the California Department of Insurance all gathered together, then split into two. Half of the task force headed toward Hollywood, the other to Santa Monica. It was there, in the beautiful coastal city, officers knocked on 75-year-old Helen's door. She answered in her silk pajamas, dazed and confused. A moment later, an FBI agent arrested her for mail fraud. Across town, task force agents swarmed Olga's apartment in Hollywood and accused her of the same crime. She was barefoot, dressed in nothing but a nightgown, and she was absolutely irate. This was outrageous, she screamed. She'd done nothing wrong. Ignoring her protests, the authorities threw her into the backseat of a squad car and brought her to the LAPD headquarters. Helen was there, too. But before either woman was officially processed, detectives brought them into a room. They were hoping they might just talk. And boy, did they deliver. The second the cops left them alone, Olga turned on Helen. She let out a tirade against her partner in crime, blaming her for getting too greedy and taking out too many policies. If only she'd treated Olga as a real partner, Olga could have steered her in the right direction. In response, Helen kept saying the same thing over and over, be quiet. But the damage was already done. In fact, it was going so well that the cops worried a judge might deem it entrapment. So every few minutes, an officer went back into the room and reminded the women they were under arrest, so they couldn't argue that they'd forgotten. Then he'd leave again, and Olga would go right back into it. But despite how much she wouldn't shut up, Olga never mentioned either of the murders. It was all about the insurance scheme for her. The authorities were disappointed not to get the confession they'd hoped for, but it didn't matter much in the long run, because while the women were locked away, officers were searching their homes. That's when everything really started to come together. In Olga's apartment, they found photocopies of Hillary Adler's driver's license, which the women had used to purchase the Mercury Sable. In Helen's apartment, they found meticulous records of all the insurance policies. They also discovered bottles of prescription sedatives, the same drugs that showed up in Kenneth's toxicology report. 
But most importantly of all, they uncovered a post-it note in Helen's planner. On it, she'd scribbled a partial vehicle identification number and Hillary Adler's name. The detectives ran the partial VIN through a DMV search. Sure enough, a silver Mercury Sable came back. It was a model that matched the blurry security footage they had. Officers tracked the car down to a local L.A. family. They'd bought it a few months ago after it had been impounded, not far from Olga's apartment. The detectives paid the family for the vehicle and then sent it to the lab for testing. At this point, nearly 11 months had passed since Kenneth's death, so investigators couldn't find any useful prints on the car. But they did notice that the fuel line had been crudely repaired. And since they already knew Helen had placed a call to AAA the night of the murder, the car was looking more and more like a smoking gun. Then they found the last piece of the puzzle. On the undercarriage of the car were trace amounts of blood that were a match for Kenneth McDavid. The police knew then they'd found the murder weapon. With that, the FBI hit pause on the mail fraud charges, and the LAPD booked Helen and Olga on murder charges. The women were held without bail until their trial started nearly two years later. In March of 2008, both women pleaded not guilty, although neither spoke in their own defense. The trial itself was a finger-pointing extravaganza. Olga's lawyer made the case that she was an innocent, impressionable woman who'd been dazzled by Helen's lifestyle. She'd gone along with the insurance fraud for the money, but she had no idea about the murders. Helen, on the other hand, shocked everyone by blaming her 40-something-year-old daughter, Keisha Golay, for the crimes. Her lawyer argued that Keisha had killed Kenneth, possibly with Olga's help. I know, right? That one came out of left field, and frankly, no one understood why Helen chose that strategy. The prosecutors never even considered Keisha a suspect. Luckily, the flimsy defense didn't sit well with the jurors. Still, when they were sent off to deliberate, they had to reconcile the pretty obvious facts of the case with their strong feelings toward the elderly women. And that would have been a trip. According to Jonathan Simon, co-chairman of the UC Berkeley Center for Criminal Justice, gender and age biases play a big role in the deliberation process. Most people have an innate belief that older women are either nurturers or in need of protection. And age is seen as a, quote, proxy for non-threateningness. I can only imagine how hard it must have been for jury members to grapple with that bias. On the outside, Helen and Olga looked like two grandmotherly women who couldn't hurt a fly. But Simon also notes that those same biases can also work against people like Helen and Olga. Even if a juror initially believed they were innocent, the second they changed their mind, their opinions took a sharp turn. Suddenly, the stereotype flips from a loving grandmother to a conniving old witch. As Simon explains, juries can be less forgiving of women when the allegations run counter to the nurturer ideal. That seems to be what happened here. Helen threw her own flesh and blood under the bus. Olga lured in vulnerable men only to hurt them. Together, the duo went against everything that older women are supposed to represent, and it certainly painted them in a new light. 
I'm guessing that none of the jurors had killer grannies on their true crime bingo card, but they knew just what to do once it came up. Three weeks after the trial commenced, the jury found 77-year-old Helen and 75-year-old Olga guilty of murder. Both received life sentences. They were sent to the same prison in Central California, about 250 miles north of Los Angeles. But even behind bars, they lived very different lives. Helen was placed in a special unit for seniors, where she holed up in her cell and wrote drafts of a memoir. Olga was sent to Genpop and talked to any journalist who would listen. She still felt like she was getting the short end of the stick and begged for legal help. And although their paths have diverged, Helen and Olga remained united in one front. To this day, they maintain their innocence. They don't have much in common anymore, but at least they have that. That and the fact that they'll likely die behind bars. I'm willing to bet they never saw that coming. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. For more information on Helen Golay and Olga Rutterschmidt, amongst the many sources we used, we found Signed in Blood, the true story of two women, a sinister plot, and cold-blooded murder by Jeannie King, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast, executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and Trent Williamson as our senior production specialist. Stacey Nemec is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Alex Burns, edited by Jane O. and Joel Callen, fact-checked by Bennett Logan, researched by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood, produced by Joshua Kern, and sound designed by Michael Langsner. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Listeners, Thank you again for joining us for Female Criminals. You truly are the best fans in the world. Follow ParCast on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter if you'd like to get updates from me, discover new ParCast series, and connect with a community of true crime fans just like you. You can also catch me each week exploring history's most notorious murderers on the ParCast series, Serial Killers. So many exciting things on the horizon. I hope you'll join me. 